I'm not the biggest Tom Cruise fan, but I've always acknowledged that, and people say this about him, and I agree with it, that as an actor, he has a limited range. But within that range, he's terrific. He knows what he does well. So, you know, when you talk about a movie like Top Gun or Mission Impossible type movies, he knows what works for him. And, and he doesn't try to push himself too much outside of that. And to his credit, he's had a very successful career. Not all of his films have worked, but you know what? He makes generally good choices and he, like career management, let's call it that. He knows what he's doing here. So even though I was very cynical about the prospect of a sequel, I'm glad I was wrong. I'm glad he proved me wrong in this because he's so terrific in this role. And the fact that, you know, as he's pushing 60, he's gonna be all that generation of actors. You know, think of Harrison Ford type actors or Liam Neeson, whatever, right? Who, who just keep going. Not all the movies are gonna be good, but you know what? You know, they get into their 50s and 60s and even beyond, and they're still able to play that kind of tough guy action role. And you know, you gotta give credit to that. If you can get away with it and do it successfully, plausibly, more power to them. Hello, and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And we're going to talk about two summer blockbusters today, Top Gun Maverick and Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. And we're going to start with Top Gun Maverick. This is a movie that you absolutely have to see in the theaters and see on the biggest screen possible. Do you agree, Mike? Yeah, I do agree with that. In fact, Tom Cruise insisted upon that. This was meant for movie theaters, and it really is. I mean, it's a movie movie that way. Um, this is a film that I have an attachment to. It doesn't mean I'm, I'm crazy about it, but I have an attachment to it. Let me explain. I teach a course on Hollywood in the 1980s, and one of the films I use is Top Gun from 1986. The particular reason I use it, or reasons, are these. It was the number one box office film that year. You know, it had such cultural presence. And secondly, in my film courses, I love to make connections between films and the cultural context. Top Gun was such a movie of the Reagan era in terms of the conservative turn that the country had taken and so on. And it very much had a Cold War context. These are the last few years of the Cold War. Even though it's treated in very generic fashion within the film, you definitely have a sense of that. It's the Soviet Union, the United States, you got to go up in the sky and, you know, knock down those enemy planes and so on. And the film doesn't dwell on that unduly, but it just permeates the film there. And also within that, speaking of what permeates in the film, there's a kind of gung-ho patriotism in a film like that. And I don't want to get up on a soapbox and make arguments one way or the other, but it's there. It's very much part of the fabric of the film. And when the film first came out in 1986, I remember making fun of it for all sorts of reasons. It lends itself to making fun of, because it's in some ways not a particularly good film, but it's very much a film of, of its, I'll use the word zeitgeist only once today. And, and it's very much of that, that era. One of the things I always made fun of in the film was the relationship between the Tom Cruise character and the Kelly McGillis character. He's in flight training school, she's the teacher. I remember friends and I laughing about this. We never had a teacher like that. Uh, you know, she's like this fashion plate coming into the classroom. And not that you can't be like well-dressed and, and well-coiffed and all that to teach in a classroom. I'm not going there. I'm just simply saying that I thought, whoa, you know, what, 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 you know, she's going into this classroom and you think she's entering a beauty pageant. It's just like, you know, and, and the way the guys respond, I mean, you're meant to like smile as you watch it, but the film has a lot of moments that it knows how silly or how extreme it is at times. It's having fun with that. So even though I used to like make fun of the film a lot, when I used it in the classroom, I realized, you know what, this is a really entertaining film. 
and you know, even though there are aspects of it that I don't agree with, or I think are a little clumsy, or this or that, or, or classroom scenes that are kind of hokey, and the romantic scenes at the end, like super hokey, it gives the audience what it wants. And yes, I'm an audience member too. So as I started using the film in the classroom, I thought, you know, I'm actually enjoying this film more than I probably enjoyed it back in 86 when I was more of a snob, believe it or not. And so watching it now, it, it's such a pleasure. Now, I, for that very reason, it's so much a film of its period. When it was announced already some years back that there would be a, a belated sequel, I'm laughing as I say that. I mean, 1986 film, and now, you know, all these decades later, more than 30 years later, a sequel. To put it mildly, I was not anticipating the sequel. And I was very cynical just thinking about, oh, brother, you know, just going for the box office and, and this and that. You know what? I got to say, to Tom Cruise's credit, he pulled it off. This is a, an extremely entertaining film. I would say it's even better made than the first one, which maybe didn't take much doing, but, but it's certainly a better made film. And it actually is really smart in some ways in terms of characters who return along with some new characters and so on. And the absolute best selling point here, and the reason to see it in movie theaters isn't just for the action sequences. And Marie's right, you need to see it in a movie theater. You need that huge screen and the surround sound, all that. But the biggest attraction, of course, is Tom Cruise. You know, believe it or not, he's 59 years old, and I don't know where that fountain of youth is, but he looks like maybe two weeks have gone by from Top Gun in 1986 to Top Gun Maverick in this our year. It's really very impressive in terms of what it means to be a movie star. Goodness knows he's a movie star here. When he's on screen, that's where your eyes go. That's where your attention is focused. That is a real, real accomplishment, because nowadays so many movies feature the special effects that Cruise very smartly, among all the smart moves here, there are special effects in this film, but there's a minimum of them. He likes to point out, he's always enjoyed doing his own stunt work, right? And he also enjoys knowing and, and, and having us know that he did his own flying for much of it. So when you watch these sequences, yeah, there's special effects enhanced, but you get a real sense of people in actual flight. And what a difference on the big screen where the stakes seem higher and more real that way. So again, I never thought I would be a fan of this particular sequel, but I found myself really liking it. And we can talk some more as we go along about other things I liked in the film. But let me turn it back to you because I know that you also really enjoyed this film. I really did. It's, it's a perfect movie to see in the theater. It's everything you go to the movies for. It takes you in a realistic way into situations you have never done. I mean, I, I could never do what they were doing because, you know, it would just make me sick just doing any of it. But I wanted to mention a few details. One is that the World War II P-51 Mustang in the movie is actually Tom Cruise's own airplane. He's an accomplished pilot in real life. Well, that's that kind of movie star background kind of detail that kind of works, but you have to be Tom Cruise. And, you know, he's had ups and downs in his careers. He's made mostly good movies, but you know, he's, he's got a kind of a backstory going on with the gossip columnist, so he's not everybody's cup of tea, but he's fantastic in this because it's exactly the kind of character that he has been sold, you know, as. Also, all of the actors playing pilots, they had to film themselves, turning the camera on and off in the plane, making sure that whatever they picked for the, you know, the settings was going to work, and they all had to be trained in terms of, you know, dealing with the gravity, and according to Miles Teller, three of the six new actors threw up every day of filming on the set. See, that would be me, you know, having to do all that stuff in the jets. So it's impressive what they do that's actually authentic because it really is not something the human body likes to do. It's not for everybody. That's why the first Top Gun was so, had such resonance for people because this is an elite 
group of people. Not everybody can do this. In this one, you know, you already know that. So you're kind of going into it with a like, you know, dazzle me, show me something amazing. There's a lot to like about it. There's a couple of things I want to run by you, Mike, to see what you thought. One is you mentioned Kelly McGillis, but they don't bring her back and they don't bring back Meg Ryan, but they do bring back Val Kilmer. I mean, you almost had to, but how did you feel about the way they were able to use Val Kilmer in a very small way just to make sure they, you know, touched base on that very well-liked character from the original movie? Thank you for asking that, because it's one of the things I like the most here. For the most part, we'd say this is, you know, light entertainment. You know, it's, it's just, it's sky-high action. It's, it's you know, romantic stuff that's very predictable and also very enjoyable. What to do, though, with the Val Kilmer character? Because, you know, as, as Iceman, we all know that in real life, Val Kilmer's had health problems in, in recent years, throat cancer and, and, and you know, very, great difficulty speaking and so on. Really somber things in real life. So how to handle that? The film, to its credit, deliberately presents him as a character who is quite ill and the fact that he's not really speaking much. And, and so there's a really, really powerful, emotionally powerful scene where Tom Cruise's character visits Val Kilmer's. And it is essentially a reunion of the Top Gun you know, pairing there. And you know what? In a film where so often you just find yourself laughing and eating your popcorn and whatever else, that scene really has emotional weight. And they handle it just right. It doesn't go on too long. And there's not a lot of melodramatic music or anything. It's just two actors face to face. And they are talking as real actors to each other as much as characters to each other. You really get a sense of the emotional bonding there. I was really moved by that. And the audience went really quiet during that scene. It really hit people that way. So in terms of parallels between the two films, sometimes the film's very deliberate about that. For instance, in, in the first film, it's the Kelly McGillis, the teacher character. She's just disappeared. You know what I mean? It's, it's like she's gone from, from this one. But you have Jennifer Connelly playing a somewhat similar role in the sense of just, you know, the, the Kelly McGillis was like this incredibly beautiful teacher who, you know, comes into the classroom and it's a classroom of guys, right? And I talk about testosterone levels, all these guys studying, you know, the flight patterns, and she comes flying down the, the, down the, the central aisle. And, you know, the film has fun with that, of course, in a, an obviously sexist way, but that's what these guys are all about. So anyway, putting that on the shelf, in this new film, uh, there is Jennifer Connelly as this barkeep, this bar owner with a teenage daughter. And she plays a somewhat similar function in that it's Tom Cruise, he needs a romantic interest. And because this is a movie star performance, she's going to be however many decades younger, you know, but he'll get the girl, if you will. But, but you know, you start, it, it's very mechanical, but you, you sort of enjoy that. And so there are parallels that way of, you know, the girlfriend he had in the first film, now here's the, the girlfriend that he'll have in the second one. By way of parallel scenes, even though some of the characters don't appear in the second film. In the case of like Goose, because Goose is deceased, Goose's son is there as a, you know a, a young member of the military looking to go up into the sky. That's the Miles Teller character that Marie was referring to before. So there are linkages that way. Some of the linkages actually made me smile because you could see them sort of like looking at the script from the first one, deciding well how much is going to carry over to the second one. So if in the first film you had that volleyball game on the beach that everyone still talks about for whatever reason that people still talk about in the second film becomes touch football and that's why at some point you know what i can just already envision like dvd extras where they'll line up the scenes in 1986 you know 2022 but there are moments like that where you feel like they they, they know what they're emulating they know what they're copying in a way or, or continuing and so sometimes very overtly they will make references that way now one parallel that doesn't quite hold here and i think it's one of the weaknesses in the 
film is that in the first film, even though the treatment of the Cold War fight between the Soviet Union and the USA was treated in a very generic fashion, it was there. It was a, a subtext and briefly at least a text within the film. Uh, in this film, they're up against an enemy who's only referred to as, quote, the enemy, close quote. And the film is so cautious that way that it almost nullifies what should be a tense aspect. There's some enemy we're up against, and yeah, you have aerial combat and, and this and that, but who, what, why? All those basic questions that one might ask. Now, what's my reading on that? And it's a rather cynical one. It seems to me that in films like this, if you have a named enemy, either by way of a country or a political belief system, whatever, filmmaking now is such an international enterprise that your film's going to play around the world. And you want your film to play in China. You want your film to play in various countries. It might be risky to have a, a you know, the Red Dawn ran into this problem. It might, it might be risky to have like a named enemy that way. So this film plays it so safe that for me, it took away much of the actual tension or peril, if you will, as in, well, who are we up against? What are the stakes here? And even though in the actual aerial combat sequences, yes, it's our plane, it's their plane. I can feel the dynamics of that. And it's a well shot and well edited film. I, I can get tensed as I'm watching it. By the same token, there's no more to it than that. It's just the thrill of the ride, if you will. There's no greater stake. There's nothing greater at stake here. Marie, let me ask you about that, because I think even as much as I enjoyed this film, I thought that was actually one area where I was disappointed, that it played it so safe that, that what should be, if not at the heart of the film, at least part of the film, is basically not there. Yeah, you're, you've actually hit on the flaw in the film, which, you know, for anybody listening, you don't have to scratch below the surface. You can just go and enjoy it on that level of, you know, Tom Cruise plays this, you know, old dog learning new tricks kind of thing. You get to have these wonderful scenes of flight. The cinematography is amazing. The CG is incredible. But when you really start to think about it, you start thinking, wait a minute, they're basically, they're going after this nuclear plant in some country where I don't know how you would actually do this diplomatically. It doesn't really work out. And the actual main thing I thought was very unoriginal about it was that the scenes where you have to blow things up, it's so evocative of Star Wars and the Death Star and that scene in Star Wars where you have to like get in the trench and you have to make that one shot and it has to go straight in. You have to be really accurate. I thought, wow, what a ripoff of Star Wars. Yeah, you know what makes it all the more frustrating, Marie, is that it's so generic, it's, it's almost not there. And yet it's pointed out in the film that Tom Cruise's character, Maverick, he has been in the service all these years. He's still just a captain. And so that, that's a plot point that does get dealt with pretty well. But the fact that in all those years in the service, it is mentioned that he had fought in Bosnia and Iraq and so on. So there are like these sprinkled references to actual conflicts. But then in terms of the present conflict, it's just not there. And, and so when Marie, you know, very ably just mentioned, you know, the particular bombing mission here with a very difficult mission to go, go into a nuclear plant and so on, logistically, that's well handled in the film. But polemically, politically, if you will, it's just a big shrug the shoulders, question mark, but who and what and why and where and all those questions. And that's really bothersome because you want the audience to feel that, yeah, it's a movie, but but at some point you have to have like larger stakes that at least get mentioned. And Marie, you're absolutely right. When you mentioned Star Wars types of films, essentially it sells out there, doesn't it? Because it just simply presents you with this dangerous mission. 
And yet, by the same token, these are guys wearing our uniform. You know what I mean? It's, that's the whole thing. It's like it's very specific in some ways, and then suddenly just washes out totally generic in terms of the actual mission. So, okay, I can accept that this is the enemy, but in a film that occasionally does mention some actual geopolitical references, I don't want to say cowardly, that's like being melodramatic about it, but just how safe it plays it. So, you know, you don't want to offend anybody anywhere. This movie's going to play around the world. In fact, Top Gun opened to huge grosses. It's, it's a big box office hit this summer. So they know what they're doing and, and audiences rightly are enjoying the film. But I think the film sometimes just plays it too safe. And yeah, Marie, Marie you're right. A sequence like that could be lifted out of a Star Wars film. Yeah, although I will say I was really impressed that Tom Cruise pulled it off. You know, he really does sell this movie, which I thought was kind of surprising. Were you surprised? Well, you know, I'm not the biggest Tom Cruise fan, but I've always acknowledged that, and people say this about him, and I agree with it, that as an actor, he has a limited range. But within that range, he's terrific. He knows what he does well. So, you know, when you talk about a movie like Top Gun or Mission Impossible type movies, he knows what works for him. And, and he doesn't try to push himself too much outside of that. And to his credit, he's had a very successful career. Not all of his films have worked, but you know what? He makes generally good choices and he like career management, let's call it that. He knows what he's doing here. So even though I was very cynical about the prospect of a sequel, I'm glad I was wrong. I'm glad he proved me wrong in this because he's so terrific in this role. And the fact that, you know, as he's pushing 60, he's going to be all that generation of actors. You know, think of Harrison Ford type actors or Liam Neeson, whatever, right? Who, who just keep going. Not all the movies are going to be good, but you know what? You know, they get into their 50s and 60s and even beyond, and they're still able to play that kind of tough guy action role. And, you know, you got to give credit to that. If you can get away with it and do it successfully, plausibly, more power to him. So I actually, you know, admire him for that. So again, not one of my favorite actors, but, you know, credit where credit's due. Now, Mike, do you think that he left the door open for a trilogy? Could there be a third Top Gun? Don't even say it out loud. <laughs> they already did. I, I'm, not a big, I'm not a big fan of sequels, as you know, but the, with the way the film is set up and with the box office grosses, and that's the most crucial thing, you could easily green light another one of these. Think about the franchises that Tom Cruise has been in, right? Even when they end in a dramatic, you know, what would seem conclusive way, there's always a way to hit the restart button. And so uh, there, there's nothing like super obvious here that, oh, there'll be another one. But uh, gosh, I'm not a betting person, but I wouldn't be surprised if we have, you know, Maverick being a Maverick, you know, as he gets into his senior citizen years. Right. You'll just be a uh, Maverick in an old folks home, you know, playing with a video game, and then you'll go into the video game or something. So, you know, the bottom line is it is everything that they make movies for. It's exciting. It's thrilling. It's something, you know, most people don't do in their normal life. It's well done. It's well shot. Just go for the ride. Try not to think too much about the details. The audience loved it. I saw loved it in the theater and you could tell people just really, and, and I did too. I was caught up in that. And, and so whatever, whatever reservations I had, and they were multiple, he won me over. So how often I, I'm saying that, but just, you know, much admiration for Tom Cruise that he makes it work. I think this is the movie for the summer. This is the movie that's going to stick around and make a bazillion trillion dollars, which brings us to Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, another attempt to get blood out of stone from a franchise that, you know, I had to actually look it up, Mike, because I have not kept up with all the Jurassic movies. I saw Jurassic Park way back in the day, probably the one that came after it, but there were, I think, three of those. And then this is the third of the Jurassic World grouping where the dinosaurs are just now here and all of the 
carnage that that goes with with that reality and and why did we do this to ourselves and you know who's actually who are you rooting for and i have to tell you i was rooting for the dinosaurs the whole way because the best parts of the movie i'm sorry to say are the chasing biting and eating scenes (laughs) what did you think mike (laughs) <laughs> You're making me laugh with that. Uh, I'm agreeing with you, essentially. Uh, this began in 1993 with the Steven Spielberg film. And there, as Marie says, there have been like two sets of, of films, two trilogies. This is film number six. For me, what really bothered me about this is, again, you know, how many times can you melt? The, it's a very, you know, enticing premise, if you will. Who doesn't love dinosaurs? Who doesn't ha- love having dinosaurs eat not just lawyers, but 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 other people too? And, and so, so that that footage is like really enjoyable to watch. But in terms of the dynamics of it, and, and this is, again, you know, what I call theme park cinema, you know, sometimes quite literally, right? How often can you revisit the theme park? Now, in this case, they've been in a theme park or on an island or wherever for so long. Now, the whole world, you know, that's the dominion, if you will. And dinosaurs are living among us. And so, you know, some of them are herbivores, if you will. They're friendly dinosaurs. And, and there's some funny scenes there, like the dinosaur in your backyard kind of thing, like like useful, almost like if you have like a raccoon or a bear or something, what to do and not do. Some of those scenes are kind of funny. But then there are the scenes where you have what clearly are carnivores, you know, the T-Rex and some other ones with names longer than my last name even. And these, these are the dinosaurs that will eat you. And what actually bothered me a bit about the film is there are so many scenes where you have a really menacing dinosaur chasing after you. And yes, I mean, how can you not enjoy that along with your popcorn? But so many of those scenes end, for whatever reason, with this really mean, vicious dinosaur stopping about 10 feet away from you and just staring at you. And I'm thinking, no, wait a minute. I know it's, you know, we're in, you know, safe family entertainment territory. But if you have so many scenes with dinosaurs right on top of people, they do occasionally eat people and animals and so on. But there should be more scenes. And this sounds like really harsh and brutal on my part, but there should be more scenes where the dinosaurs do their thing, right? If they're gonna if they're gonna chase somebody through the woods and then they stop 10 feet away, do they suddenly have a pang of humanitarian conscience or what? You know, mm-hmm. why this di- you know what I'm getting at Marie, there are a lot mm-hmm. of scenes where the dinosaurs pause like that, particularly when our movie stars are involved. You can't eat the movie star. You gotta pause in front of the person there. But anyway, cutting to the quick on as to why I was at best lukewarm about this film and actually didn't care for it overall is For me, it's an example of what I call franchise exhaustion. It's film number six in this series, much the same dynamics playing out. You know, how much more of it can you do? And it has 146 minute running time. So you have a film that's like really busy and really long and doesn't know when to quit. And there are a lot of examples I could give, but for instance, there are scenes set all over the world. So there's there's an extended sequence in Malta and it's a chase sequence, which actually involves vehicles more than anything else, it might as well be a born identity kind of film. I mean, there are whole like whole stretches of the film, like 15, 20 minutes of the clip. I thought, wait a minute, this is so generic in terms of being pulled from that kind of a chase film. Do you need it? Now, where I did like the film more was its mixture of old characters and new characters. So yes, Jeff Goldblum, Sam Neill, and Laura Dern appear. And not just in cameos, they have substantial parts. And it is really nice to see them on screen. And they really do these parts well. And yeah, there's some emotional warmth to that, to have them meeting each other again as characters and for us to meet them. And just as a quick sideline, years ago, I had met Laura Dern in a film festival and, and what I call the likability meter, 
she's really high up on that. She's just one of these really likable people and her characters like that. And those are things that I like about the film. The fact that those characters have substantial roles and they interact, they intersect with some of the newer characters who are coming from this most recent trilogy. That interweaving of old characters and new characters generally works here. There are aspects of the story I don't care for though. For instance, the fact that, well, if some dinosaurs get along with humanity and some dinosaurs still want to eat us, you know, who's going to try to take control of this, you know, relatively unstable situation, how we're going to coexist is a word they use in the film a lot, how we're going to coexist with the dinosaurs. There is a seemingly benevolent billionaire played by Campbell Scott, who seems like he wants to do the right thing, if you will, in terms of a reserve in the Dolomites in Italy where the dinosaurs can live peacefully, yada, yada. But let me put it this way. He is a billionaire. Therefore, you know he is evil. And whether it's the way he wears his hair or his suit or the way he smirks, you know he's really a bad guy. And once it gets into some of those bad guy machinations, it's so hokey and it's so over the top. It's so silly. It's like live action cartoon material. And it goes on at great length with that. And so those, some of those final chase sequences and also involving them against the billionaire, it's just too much and it's just too drawn out. And again, when I say franchise exhaustion, I mean, this film itself can kind of leave you feeling sort of worn out, doesn't it, Maria? It seems to me after a while, I start to lose my sympathy for the characters. Even the, the actors I mentioned, like Laura Dern and Sam Neill and Duff Goldblum, after a while, it's like, okay, enough already. Bring it to a close. Bring it to a resolution. What do you think? I think you're absolutely right. The formulaic aspect of it, I think, really drags it down. I watched the other two Jurassic World movies right before I went to, to see the latest one. So I would, you know, at least be up to date with, with the idea of the movie. And I mean, they're indistinguishable from each other. And as we've talked many, many times, the going over the two hour limit by 20 some minutes is unforgivable, especially because there's no new ground being broken there it's really just you know the third movie's chance to you know really go for as many scenes as they can and they could have edited it down to two hours easily but having said that i i did want to just throw out there as we're coming to a close here the idea that when i was watching it i was thinking well you know this is like the modern day godzilla movie you know this is the movie where it's about the misunderstood monsters among us kind of thing and how much mayhem are they going to create but like i said i was 100 on the side of the dinosaurs i wanted them to wreak havoc i wanted them to eat everybody in the parts where they're trying to come up with the storyline for the people i was bored i was like uh, let's get back to the carnage folks that's why we're here right isn't that why people go to see this kind of movie See, another aspect of the franchise exhaustion is the fact that when Spielberg made his movie, it had what were then state-of-the-art special effects. And I remember seeing it when it first came out. It was amazing just to see that interaction between humanity and dinosaurs, wasn't it? It was just wondrous in the way Spielberg can be wondrous. By now, we're so many installments into it that it's kind of blasé. We know what special effects can do. And yes, they're still impressive, but it doesn't have that wow factor that it once had. That's inevitable. But then when you know that you no longer quite have that, and then the film goes on for almost two and a half hours, it really wears out whatever welcome it still had at that point. And that's why I think, you know, I was ultimately quite disappointed and, and frankly kind of bored by it. You know, it was so loud and so relentless and just so stupid at times that I, I was kind of bailing out. Though I watched every minute of it, but, but mentally I was almost checking out at times. Maria, I think you, you felt the same way that it just it wasn't very interesting after a while. 
you could actually zone out or even take a nap. And then when you hear the music starting up and you know that, you know, now is the action, that's when it's time to open your eyes and watch these really cool dinosaurs, very well rendered. You have to admit the CGI is amazing, but that's, that's what you're waiting for. Everything else just seems like a pause while they set up the shot to make the most of dinosaurs, you know, running amok. <laughs> and they do run amok and i had to laugh like you know you know there'll be chaos by the end of a film like this right the dinosaurs all over the place and so on but it takes a long time to get to those scenes i mean marie is enjoying all the murder and mayhem and chaos but it takes a while to get there doesn't it and even once mm -hmm. it gets there some of the scenes are so drawn out you think you know marie wants to see the the actual you know bloody conflict but it takes a while sometimes it's a long chase before you get that so, so marie i understand what you're saying like if you're going to go for it really go for it here and what Marie and I are saying is this film just has everything so overly familiar, so formulaic and so drawn out. If people are going to watch neat dinosaurs, there are a lot of wonderfully rendered dinosaurs here. But then you have all of what I call filler, all the other stuff in between. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And the filler is what makes it go for, you know, over two hours, which is you really have to sell it if you're going to do it that way. And they really don't. So would you say this is one you need to see in the theater? Well, you know, Marie, of the six films in this series, it's the longest one. We've been saying that, but it is actually, if you count, you know, the, the running time for each, it's the longest one. If you're going to see it, you might as well see it in the theater because it does have enough, you know, eye-popping moments in terms of the dinosaurs and, and the fight scenes and so on. But I'm not recommending that any, anybody even see it. But if you are going to see it, I would think the theater would be the best route to go, sure. And I did see it in 3D, so I highly recommend that if, you know, your reason for seeing this is, you know, to get up close and personal with the mayhem. But that does bring us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to check out our other episodes on dragondigitalradio.podbean.com and also under Dragon Digital Radio on Spotify and Pandora. And we'll see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.